since its release in November 1990, uh, Home Alone still stands on top of the list as the highest grossing live action comedy ever. If you remember this movie, The McAllisters, uh, family in suburban Chicago, uh, they're going to go to Europe for, for Christmas. And if you remember this, the day before they're supposed to leave, all the relatives are coming into the house, and so it's just chaotic, because they're all going to go into Everett, cousins and everybody else. But Kevin, 10-year-old Kevin McAllister, uh, he's kind of the one that the rest of the older siblings are ridiculing and mocking, and they're pushing his buttons, and he's pushing them back. And Kevin kind of, his smart-aleck mouth and his actions, he just had enough, and so he kind of blows up. The, the, the night before they're supposed to go. And so his mom grabs him, remember this, and, and takes him and says, upstairs to the, you know, the attic bedroom. And he says, oh, I don't want to go up there. It's scary up there. And she says, no, you're, you're up there. And so he looks there and he says, I hate you. I hate this whole family. I wish I didn't have a family. Remember? remember? And his mom says, be, you know, be careful what you wish for. You may get it. And so he goes up to the attic bedroom. That night, you know, there's a power outage, and so the family wakes up late to get to the airport for their flight. And so they're all rushing to get out in the miscount. They think that Kevin is with them. They think he's in the, people in one band think he's in the other or whatever. Well, he's asleep upstairs in the attic bedroom. So he wakes up a little bit later. Everybody's gone. He uses his logic, and he thinks, I've wished my family away. They've disappeared. It's my, my fault. And then he starts to smile. He loves this. He's jumping on the beds and he's eating junk food and he's watching all kinds of videos that he can't watch. He's doing all the things I do when Teresa's not home. He's just having a grand old time. He's just enjoying this. He's having a blast. Um, now, what complicates his life a little bit is there's a couple of crooks in the neighborhood, Harry and Marv. They've picked uh, several homes that they're going to burglarize that they think the people are going to be gone and they've picked the McAllister home because they knew they were supposed to go to Europe. And so Kevin knows when the crooks are going to be there. He overheard something, and so he sets up all these hilarious slapstick booby traps, and these half-wit uh, crooks are all get all tangled up in these things, and we're laughing hysterically. That, but that's a, a storyline, but there's another one deeper, actually, in the movie. Because Kevin starts to realize that being a home alone is not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I don't have anyone to set limitations and yell at me, but I don't have anyone to hug me and to love me and to believe in me. And so he, he, he's feeling very sad about this, kind of wishes that he wouldn't be alone, that he didn't make this uh, proclamation, hope his family went away. So Christmas Eve, he goes to see Santa and he says, Santa, I don't want any toys, I just want my family back. And he's walking back towards his, his home late afternoon, it's already kind of dark, and he passes a church. And in the church, they're singing, they're practicing, rehearsing, getting ready for the uh, Christmas Eve service. And you see Kevin's face. It's almost like, well, I've talked to sin. I might as well talk to God as well. Or, or maybe he's feeling lots of remorse because of his own issues made his family go away. And so he wanders into the church. And in the church, he meets another very lonely soul, an aged neighbor who he was previously afraid of, and, well, let's, let's watch what happens.
Christmas. May I sit down? That's my granddaughter up there. The little red-haired girl. She's about your age. You know her? No. You live next to me, don't you? You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. It is? I think so. Are you feeling bad about yourself? No. I've been kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love him. You can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. Came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You have plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? Well, he's grown up. We lost our tempers, and I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. We haven't spoken to each other since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. The basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it. And he won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I talked to my dad. Especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot. For your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you, and the presents. I sent her a check. Wish my grandparents said that. They always send me clothes. Last year I got a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. Oh, that's nice. Not for a guy in the second grade. You can get beat up for wearing something like that. Oh? Yeah. I have a friend who got nailed because there was a rumor he wore dinosaur pajamas. You better run along home where you belong. 
You think about what I said, all right? Okay. It's nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. According to psychiatrist Dr. Leonard Zunin, he says this. He says, despite the fact that the average American meets as many people in one year as their ancestors met in a lifetime 100 years ago, loneliness is the main problem facing Americans today. In his uh, tragic essay, Thomas Wolfe, he writes this. He says, the whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness far from being a rare and curious phenomenon peculiar to myself and a few other solitary men, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. Loneliness. Uh, It says that uh, it's estimated that 500,000 people aged 60 plus will celebrate Christmas physically alone this year. But we know you don't have to be physically alone to be alone. It's estimated that at any given time, one-third of Americans claim to feel lonely. And you know that, that feeling is exacerbated, of course, at Christmas time. Elvis sings, I'll have a blue Christmas. Christmas is a time when relationships are, are celebrated. They're, they're highlighted. You give gifts to those you love, almost as a, a sign, a renewal friendship covenant or something, and they give them to you. You enjoy the time with each other, so much so that Christmas time seems to shine a hot spotlight on that empty chair. And maybe you're realizing at Christmas time anew that what you have today is never what you used to have, or it's not what you used to have. You'll, you'll never have that back. Or maybe you're thinking at Christmas time, I don't have what other people seem to have, what maybe I'll never have. Uh, at Christmas time, again, we, we recognize sometimes in the midst of people, we feel deeply alone. They, they, there's nobody who truly understands who really loves me, who's really committed to me. Um, now, the problem with, with loneliness, I mean, loneliness is, is debilitating on our, both our emotional health and our physical health studies show. But it goes beyond that. Loneliness is a dangerous place to be because when we are in the depths of just deep, dark loneliness, if our goal is to get out of that loneliness, and sometimes we will do stuff we probably shouldn't do in order to try to get out. And what that comes back to haunt us then is because in time the loneliness is deeper and now it's been compounded with regret and scars and pain that didn't need to be part of the equation. So loneliness is not something that you necessarily need to try to get out from under, but what you do while you're in that loneliness is incredibly critical. Now what we want to look at this morning is that first Christmas a a person who experienced a depth of loneliness Uh, believe it or not a loneliness at Christmas time is around from the beginning so if you have your Bibles if you'll turn with me Matthew chapter 1 Matthew chapter 1 going to be looking at at Joseph Joseph is kind of a Sometimes he's a prop at Christmas time. He's, he doesn't say a whole lot or do a whole lot. He's just kind of there. He's like the father of the bride at a wedding. He's in the shadows. But probably nobody has paid as great a price as this person. 
Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Right away, there are some confusing things about this. She's pledged to be married to him, and yet they're talking about a divorce. He's called her husband, even though they're pledged to be married to him. Understanding the, the Jewish engagement deal is incredibly helpful in, in realizing and in interpreting the, the, the text. There are three aspects to uh, Jewish engagement. First is the arrangement. And the arrangement, it's really, it's, it's not official, but its parents kind of get together and they kind of eye somebody for their child. Perhaps uh, they hire, they would hire at this point, a, a uh, official matchmaker. You know, I mean, this is like a headhunter for a child, uh, for a spouse for your kid. You know, you know who we are, what we're about, go find us somebody. Um, it, it's like the e-harmony of the time. You know, it was just somebody who would get involved and would, they wouldn't really consult the kids, but they would get together, the parents would get together and kind of figure out who should be married to who. Now, as soon as the girl became able to conceive in, in, in a healthy way, bear a, a child, well, then things heated up and it moved from the arrangement uh, stage to the betrothal stage. And at that point, the groom's parents and the bride's parents sat down around the table and they started talking about the bride price. Now, different cultures are different. Some cultures, the, the bride's parents would pay the bride price. Some cultures, the groom's parents would pay the bride price. But they're, they're talking this, this through. And, and uh, when they decide on a price they all feel good about, they would actually go through a legal ceremony, sign a legal document. The, the document would be registered with the people in the, in the town, the elders in town. And so at that point, they are, it's like their marriage license. They are legally, officially married. But they, the groom and bride did not live together yet. The groom went back home with his parents. The bride went back home with her parents. And for a year... They would learn from their parents what it was to, to be married, how you did this thing. And they would be brought together publicly on occasion so they could get to know each other, so honeymoon wasn't too terribly awkward. But then they would spend, go back and spend lots of time with each other. This, at this point in history, if the man was to die, the gal would be considered a widow. It was Money had changed hands. They had signed official documents. At this time, if the, the couple decided they were going to break up, for whatever reason. Well, it was not that easy. It's a legal thing now. Money's changed hand. Official papers have been signed. And so you have to go sign more official papers in order to break up. That would be the divorce. Well, Mary and Joseph are in stage two. They're betrothed to be married. Uh, officially, legally, they are husband and wife. But they just haven't come together yet. Now, let's look at Mary for for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you something. I want you to... to uh, Think about this, though, before I read this. An angel just comes to Mary. Mary's probably 13, 14 years old. Angel comes to her, tells her she's going to have Jesus. Mary, spontaneously, off the top of her head, writes a song. Mary's just kind of an artsy type. She writes this song off the top of her head. Mary would not have been to school. Mary would not have been to Torah school. Mary would not have had any formal religious education, scripture education at all. But she writes this. While I read this, again, be thinking. Junior high girl writes this. 
Verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now, you you might not see it, but in this, this song, Mary's song, that she just wrote off the top of her head, it is dripping with Old Testament inferences. I mean, there is all kinds of scripture in this, this song. And so you have to ask yourself, where does this, this 13-year-old kid, who's never been to Torah school, whose friends would not be uh, biblically literate, they, they weren't supposed to be, where does she get this? Where does this junior high kid understand scripture on this level? The only place it would be possible would be through her parents. Uh, her mom and dad must have been very, very godly people uh, who were deeply committed to, to, to Deuteronomy 6 where it says raise up your, your child, train up your child. So they're pouring into Mary. Their goal was to love God and model for, for Mary and train her up to be a solid, godly woman. Now here's... If you're a parent who who thinks this much about serving, knowing God, raising, discipling your child, if you have to pick a spouse for your child, what kind of spouse are you going to pick? You're going to pick some spiritual bozos. You're going to pick somebody who's just making lots of money and they're going to be able to protect her and take care of her. Those things are all secondary, right? You're going to be picking number one. Are they in love with God? Do they care for his word? Are they, number one, committed to him? Do they have an intimate relationship with God? And so that's what we would expect uh, Mary's parents to pick for Mary. And scripture is there, right? Uh, Verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Now, Joseph was a righteous man. Uh, Theologian, New Testament theologian Scott McKnight reminds us that the word for righteous Hebrew word is tzaddik. And McKnight says that this is not just an adjective, that you, you know, a righteous man. This is a category. Very few people get labeled this. This label is for the super saints. It's for Zacharias and Simeon. And if you get this label, your reputation is stellar. The, the, a righteous person is someone who has an unswerving commitment to the word of God. They are going to live by it or die by it. They're going to figure out what God's word says and they're going to do it no matter what. It's somebody who's well-versed, who understands, not just in a head, but in their heart and they're living it out. If you were a tzaddik, a righteous man, your reputation would be stellar. I mean, in town, in the village you lived in, you would be one of the leaders of the town. Your opinion would be revered. Your, your, your counsel would be sought after if you were a tzaddik. Every, you might not say much, but when you spoke, kind of like E.F. Hutton thing, people would listen. You would be the person. A tzaddik was one whose mo- moms would look at and say, whoa, 
I wish he'd married my boy, my, 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 not my boy. I wish he'd married my, my daughter. And they'd say, they'd say, honey, maybe you can get someone like Joseph at Sadiq. And I'm sure that when it came out that he was engaged to marry officially, lots of hearts broke in Nazareth. That Sadiq would be somebody who uh, the dads would point out and say, son, maybe you can be like Joseph one day. This was a, a culture that the most important thing wasn't sports. It wasn't academia and degrees and it wasn't how much money you made. It was righteousness. And Joseph had a ton of it. Joseph was at the top of the heap there. Joseph was to righteousness what you know, Tom Brady was to NFL quarterbacks. Or Warren Buffett was to making money or something. This is Joseph. He was, he was a sharp, sharp guy. But Joseph uh, had a problem. Joseph's fiance, Mary... Uh, it's diagnosed as pregnant. And, and he knows. It's not by him. He hasn't been with her. And they're in a small town. Everybody knows each other's business. This is, word is going to carry, carry quick. But now, what is, what is he supposed to do? What is a tzaddik, someone who's committed to the law of God, do when their fiancé uh, is pregnant by, obviously, somebody else? What are you supposed to do? Well, well the scripture's real clear. Deuteronomy 22 it says she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house you must purge the evil from among you this is what he was supposed to do the law was clear if you're at Sadiq you're committed to the law this is now the Romans were in charge of the area now when this was written keep in mind Israel was in charge now the Romans are kind of over this whole thing. And so not a whole lot of stoning takes place. They'll still go off and do it on occasion. But the Romans kind of capital offense was something they took care of. But this would have been Joseph's expectation. Still, his expectation for a tzaddik was to repudiate his errant fiance publicly in a trial for adultery. That's what was supposed to happen. That's what Joseph's w- w- was there but what do you do? Now, now, keep in mind, you and I know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. But Joseph didn't know the end of the story. I mean, yeah, Mary came up with this, this goofy deal about an angel. An angel hadn't been sighted in 500 years. You know, some, that was like something that God did way back when. But in these modern times, angels just don't appear. And, and this was a goofy story. He didn't buy it. We wouldn't have bought it either. As far as he's concerned, Mary, she's not claiming she was assaulted. Which means she was a willing party to this whole thing. And it's not like there could be an accident or we lost control or anything because you're not allowed to be together privately. You're cloaked in many cloaks. So this was a premeditated thing. Premeditated defiance of God, of the law. Remember, righteousness is the number one thing. Well, this is everything but righteous. This was unrighteous all over the place. Defying God clearly. And Mary, oh, she was telling everyone, she making out like she was such a huge godly girl. Well, we really know what, what happened. This is what Joseph is perhaps thinking. So what's he supposed to do? Well, he knows what the law is. What would you do? Try to get in his skin for a second. You got a fiancé, uh, and suddenly she is uh, found pregnant. You got a fiancé, and suddenly you realize he has uh, been messing around with other gals. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Talk about loneliness, right? 
I mean, the one thing, Joseph, he was a righteous man. It wasn't like he was a jerky person. He was a righteous man. And, and this was official. There was a document signed and money had changed hands. And, and Mary had committed to, to him. And, and, and she claimed to love God. I mean, how could this possibly be? Talk, now, we don't know how long Joseph was left to wrestle with this. But it was some time. And I'm telling you what, if I'm Joseph, I'm praying. And he says, nothing. What's he do? This is what the law says. What's he do? Well, it says, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Now, that's because of the participle. It's a, a being, a term. It can be translated causal like this, because, or just as legitimately, it can be translated with the word although. I, I like that better. Although Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Even though Joseph knew what the law said. Even though he, he understood what was supposed to happen. Even though he was hurt and crushed and can't understand Mary's lies. And was feeling incredible pain and grief right now. And it's her fault. Even though he wasn't going to go down the road of vengeance. Because being righteous is not just out here. It's, it's inside your heart. And so he decides he wants to uh, divorce her quietly. The law allowed for that. So he was going to go down that road. Verse 20, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared. Now, stop for just a second. God allows him to wrestle, right? In this... Loneliness, feeling incredibly betrayed. Uh, God allow, allows him to wrestle. Maybe God is kind of like looking, what's he going to do? Uh, test his heart, perhaps. And before he knows the end of the story that you and I know, while he's still thinking Mary has, has hurt him terribly, he still decides in that pain, in that grief, in that uh, loneliness, he still decides to do the right thing. And it's only then that God, through the angel, appears to him. Isn't that wild? God, it would might have been easier if God just told him and then after he had already decided. But, but no, God watches. The most, probably the clearest sign of righteousness is when uh, what righteousness does in the depth of pain and, and hurt. That's why trying to escape loneliness is sometimes frivolous and it leads to trouble but what you do with it and so joseph uh, considers he, he makes up his mind he's going to divorce her quietly he couldn't be married law was real clear you couldn't be married and he was st still in sadiq and the law did provide for a quiet divorce but you couldn't get married that was done but verse 20 says but after you considered this an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream and said joseph son of david do not be afraid to take mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, why do you think the angel said don't be afraid to take Mary? I'm guessing. Because according to the law, if that baby inside Mary is not his, he cannot marry her. 
If that baby belongs to some other uh, uh, mortal person, some other human, that that baby is theirs, he cannot marry her. He can't by law. But according to law, if it is his, then he's got a man up. And he has to do the right thing and, and uh, take Mary and raise the boy. And by law, that's what he's supposed to do. So you see his dilemma. Regardless of what he says, as soon as he takes Mary as his wife, he has publicly said with his actions, the baby is mine. That's what he said. And how it would be perceived, and this would follow him for his whole life, is people would, would, would mock, oh, that Joseph. He's such a good actor, isn't he? Oh, he's such a sadiq. Yeah, right. Right. To defy God this way. To not really respect or care for Mary. I mean, moms would look at Joseph and shudder. That they almost wanted him to marry their daughter. That monster could hurt their, their child. Like that. People would look at him and accuse him of, of hypocrisy in major ways. No longer would anyone care about Joseph's opinion or, or respect what, what he thought. No longer would he be considered a leader in the community. Dads would look at him and, and point him out to their sons and say, that, that hormone-driven dirtbag liar, don't be like that. That's, and Joseph would, would carry that reputation his entire life. That's what he would be. So he's got to be thinking, you know, if I go through this, there's going to be a social loneliness like all man. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary. It says that, that he is supposed to give the baby the name Jesus. Now, what that means is the, the dad of the baby named the, the child for Joseph to name the child is to adopt. So Joseph is adopting baby Jesus. Now this is why this is so huge. Because this whole, if you look at, if you get your Bibles open, you look at the first 17 verses, it's just a big old genealogy. And the whole purpose of that genealogy is to show us, to show the Jewish uh, readers, that uh, Joseph was from the line of David. And why that's important is because the Messiah, Scripture tells us all over the Old Testament, the Messiah coming is going to be from the line of David. Now, Luke lets us know that Mary is from the line of David, but you never got your heritage, your genealogy, from the mom's side. You never did. And so if Joseph would not have married Mary, Jesus still would not be considered from the line of David. But the moment he adopts Jesus as his own, Jesus is now officially considered from the line of David. He, he fits it. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, now if you look back for just a second at verse, uh, end of uh, 20, 21, the angel's talking, right? The angel comes in 2021. And see that the quotes start. Joseph, son of David. You see quote marks. Then at the end of 21, because he will save their people from their sins. End quote. And so this, you need to know, there's no quotes in the Greek. They don't they didn't have such a thing. And so the people who translated the text had to try to figure out, well, what, when does the angel start speaking and when does he finish speaking? According to D.A. Carson, I think he's probably the, the uh, he's definitely, in my mind, the greatest New Testament theologian today. Uh, 
he says that he thinks 22 and 23 are also said by the angel. That they're not just a narration, narrator's comments thrown in there, but they're said by the angel, and that makes sense. The angel looked at Joseph and said, this is, was given to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. At Sadiq is most concerned with what's the Bible say, and the angel is kind of saying, Joseph, this is why it's happening this way. Because the scripture says that she's got, and he quotes Isaiah 7, that the woman has to be a virgin for the Holy Spirit to bring about the child. That would be incredibly assuring to a tzaddik, a righteous person. What does scripture say? Now, now verse 24. This is, this is and stay with me for a second. Verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He was obedient. But a key element in helping him be obedient was verses 22 and 23. The word of God. It's when the angel said, this is what scripture says. You could see Joseph going, oh, that's right. And through the word of God, Joseph is suddenly energized to obey. Now, you see folk who are too busy to be in the scripture. Too busy for the word of God. Uh, especially if you feel like God has ripped you off. God, you know, I tried and I'm serving and I'm trying to know. And I was a Sadiq, I was a righteous, I really knew the word. But God has kind of ripped me off and so I'm just kind of laying it aside right now. But it was through the scripture, through understanding what God says, that, that Joseph is empowered to obey Listen, whenever you're in the depth of loneliness and pain, that is the wrong time to decide, I'm, I'm, putting God, I'm too busy for God's word. I don't have time for it anymore. Forget it. That is the wrong time. What you do in the loneliness is the most critical thing about you. It's not the time. It's the time to, to, to ignore God's word. It's the time to trust him. So Joseph listens to the word of God. And then in verse 24, when Joseph awoke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son and he gave him the name Jesus. Just drawing some some observations, some applications here. First of all, regarding the person that God uses. Person God uses. Um, Character, not reputation now I remember at one point and all young parents go through this or at least you should uh, Teresa and I were thinking out with our will if we both get killed uh, for some reason who's going to watch our children you ever go through this this, this, is, a, this is a bad rough time isn't it you try to figure this out because you're saying well my sister oh not your sister well my brother oh not your brother and they got all this and we, you go through that Exercise and you see the dysfunction in everybody else, and man, nobody. You're not going to trust any of these people to discipline and to comfort and to train. And when you know your child is going to emulate even their idiosyncrasies, you got to be thinking, oh man, we just can't get killed because our kids would be in all kinds of trouble. Now, God is thinking, He's looking for somebody to raise His son. Who do you think He's going to choose? Now, this is important because we know. Who we want our children to be like. What, what do we, what do we, we th- think about Joseph for a second though. First of all, he was poor. 
we know that because when it came time for he and Mary to sacrifice, they brought the gift of a pauper. Uh, to our knowledge, Joseph would never go beyond living hand-to-mouth. He just didn't have a lot of the accoutrements of success and prestige. Joseph's reputation, of course, is now shot. Um, Joseph was a quiet person. He was a sh- I think he's kind of like a shy, introvert sort of person. If you're a shy, introvert person, you need to take some comfort here. Because at Christmas story in Scripture, Matthew and Luke... Uh, Mary does a lot of talking, angels do talking, shepherds do talking, magi do talking, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth all are talking, and then you've got Simeon and Anna talking, and Herod's talking, I and mean, everybody's talking. Even in a, a play, the goofy innkeeper usually has more lines than Joseph, because there's not a single word in all of scripture attributed to Joseph. He's just a quiet guy. Whenever the, the, the team, Mary and Joseph, are together, Mary's the spokesman. Mary's out there. She's talking. Joseph's nice, a strong, silent type. He's not saying anything. We think we want our kids to be like someone who's, who's out there and they're, they're, they've got it all. And God, when he looks. Remember uh, Samuel's looking for a king and he sees this guy that's kind of strapping looking guy and he says, this is the one. First Samuel 16, remember this? And God comes to Samuel and says, no, 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 no. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. When we look at the text, maybe this Christmas, we stop and say, the type of person God uses is not necessarily somebody that's on the Lifestyles and Rich and Famous, or, but somebody whose heart is there. Somebody who is faithful to him, even though everybody else may think not. Somebody who's faithful to, to their God. Uh, character, not reputation. Um, also, when we think about this, thinking about the gifts that God gives. Say substance, not fluff. Um, the gift that God gave Joseph that first Christmas, gift of despair and grief, loneliness. Merry Christmas, Joseph. Here you go. It's like, you know what? Lord, this is really the best you could do. But when you're in the depth of that kind of loneliness and you choose what's right and you obey and you go against your feelings and you do what you think God would call you to do according to his word, all kinds of stuff happens. I mean, I wonder if, if Joseph, remember, thinking that Mary had ripped him off and hurt him and still chose to do what was right, I wonder if he's the one that pulled Jesus aside one day and said, when he's training Jesus up, said, Jesus... Listen, someone hurts you. You know what you're supposed to do? You turn the other cheek. No, no, no vengeance stuff, Jesus. We love our enemies. I wonder if when Jesus was a man and they dragged that woman caught in adultery to him and the men all had stones. They were going to do this. They were going to stone her to death. I wonder if Jesus thought of the model of his dad. And there was a woman at the well and he knew her past. But I wonder if he thought, you know... These gals, if they knew Jehovah like my mom does, these are glorious people. These are wonderful people. They was protecting. Uh, Joseph, uh, 
my guess is he would be walking through the rest of his life and people would whisper about him or kind of when he'd be on one side of the road people would cross over the other side so not to be contaminated by his unrighteousness I would wonder if he would ever question this whole deal but then when he got home and uh, toddler Jesus kind of scoot up to him and raise his arms to him you know babies and Joseph would pick him up and a little baby Jesus with his little pudgy toddler hands kind of take his hairy face in his hands and look at him and, and daddy love you don't you know Joseph at that point oh man oh man this is the son of God telling me this this is a gift that no one else in this world is going to be sometimes God wraps his gifts they look like pain or they look like hurt and truly they're gifts from God the goal is not to try to get out from underneath the pain or the loneliness but it's how I handle it a third point I don't have this on the screen but it's it's the savior not Santa now I, I don't know what you do about the Santa Claus we did Santa Claus growing up we did it with our kids but as they grow as we grow we realize afresh and anew that the Savior is what Christmas is all about remembering that loneliness does not start in this generation loneliness goes all the way back to the garden right I mean Adam and Eve they get kicked out of the garden and before they know it their boy Cain kills their other son Abel And then God banishes Cain. And so that night around the dinner table, they've got two empty chairs. Their son Cain is gone. Their son Abel is gone. And they will never see either one of them again. Don't you know that the pain was, was so deep, the loneliness, that it was just inevitable for them to face. But, but we've got to keep this in mind, that it does, loneliness doesn't start there. It goes back into the garden. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out. They were then isolated from God. Uh, I believe that, that all of our loneliness on a deep level stems from that. It's feeling lonely from God. It's isolated from God, from purpose and significance in Him. And, and, and Jesus, this baby Jesus was going to grow up. And He was going to go to the cross one day and He was going to bear that ultimate loneliness that belonged to His dad, Joseph that belonged to his mom, Mary, that belonged to me and that belonged to you, when he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It probably doesn't amaze Jesus that I forsake him. He knows my my frame. He knows that I'm but dust. You as well. But think about his relationship with his father. It was from eternity past. You may have had good relationships. You haven't had anything like the relationship between uh, Jesus and his father. It was... was, uh, I don't even know how you, you put that in words. The community they shared, the perfection that they shared in that relationship. And then at the cross, God the Father turns his back on his son. Because of Joseph's sin and Mary's sin and my sin. Jesus bore the incredible aloneness at that point. So that I don't have to bear it. And so you don't have to bear it. And Jesus, before he left, he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you a gift, the Holy Spirit, says to his followers. He says, through the Spirit, I will never leave you 
or forsake you. And so this, this, this Christmas time, and I know how this goes, it gets so busy and so hectic. And maybe for you, it's always been about this presence. Maybe this year, it's time to be delivered even from that internal loneliness through Jesus. Because we do not have to be home, home alone ever again. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord God, for showing us through Joseph how one can handle or deal with the, the loneliness and the pain and, and the grief. Our desire, Lord, is to respond aright to be so committed to your word that we would, we would take encouragement through it and we would respond in a way that would please you. Ultimately, Lord, we would say thank you for giving us Jesus this time of year who would take away our, our loneliness and as we would experience tinges of it humanly between now and the time we see you face to face, would you remind us anew and anew and anew, God, that you will never leave us. I would pray that would be so. And Lord, as we even take up this offering now, would you use the the funds that are given, God, to bring the message of your presence uh, through Brianna, through our our missionaries, through the the folk in Thailand. God, cross this world and in Erie and in our own homes. I would pray that that would be so, Lord. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.